0: Welcome to the Theology Pugcast. This is Cr Wiley, and I'm joined, as I am every week, with by some friends, and uh, we are here in the back room of the uh, of the uh, what is this place called? Corner Pug. The Corner Pug.
1: <laughs> that's it. The Corner Pug.
0: I just drew a blank, but anyway, we are in the back room of the Corner Pug, and uh, they've actually really uh, led us uh, back here, and it's been great. We've had it, our last few shows back here. I think it's helped the, the sound quality. But We did have a guy pound the steak in the kitchen uh, just a few minutes ago, but he's done, apparently, and so we don't have to we worry hope. about that anymore. That's right. That's right. That's right. But uh, why don't we introduce
2: ourselves, and uh, uh, Glenn, why don't you start? I'm Glenn Sunshine, Professor of History at Central Connecticut State University and Senior Fellow at the Golson Center for Christian Worldview. And I'm Tom Price, a systematic
1: theologian and Christian ethicist, and I teach both at uh, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And just for uh, uh, just as a note, um, there is actually a rock and roll song on in the background, the band Rush, an 80s band, and it's not Mariah Carey every week. That's, That's right. Awesome. We got <laughs> We're mixing it up.
0: We, we persuaded them to change the station. And uh, I'm C.R. Wiley, and I'm the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut. Anyway, uh, folks who listen to us every week may wonder, why in the world do they introduce themselves every single time? Well, I know it's hard to believe, but for some of our listeners, this is the first time they've listened to the podcast.
1: Yeah, welcome. Yeah, welcome, <laughs>
0: welcome. I know it's hard to believe, you know, many of our listeners think everyone in the world should have listened by now, and we agree, <laughs> and we're working at it. And pass
1: it, pass it on. <laughs> that's right, that's
0: right. All right. But uh, today is Tom's Day. As uh, listeners know, we kind of go around the horn, as they say in baseball, and each take a turn. And today is Tom's Day. So, Tom, what are we talking about?
1: Okay. Well, as usual, when it's Tom's Day, I like to uh, reconnect to previous days that we've done. And one of the reasons I do this is because we have covered a lot of topics, each of us. And these topics continuously sort of repeat themselves, not this not the same way of focusing on the topic, but those themes run together over and over again because they're constant challenges, I think, that we have both in, in Western culture as as we encounter it, but also the the impact of those challenges on the church. And so when we talk about certain theological topics or worldview topics, or even you know, literary, artistic, or anything from the humanities, or even when we're talking about work, we're trying to do this all from trying to bring out the deep um, reflection and resources that um, that we have as Christians to kind of penetrate every area of life because as Christians we think the gospel has to do with every area of life. Right. And we also realize that Because we exist in the already but not yet, um, there's still uh, fallen forces uh, that don't want the success of the gospel or the success of the gospel uh, impacting every region of life. Um, So so a lot of these themes may sound repetitious, um, but there's a point to why I keep visiting them. And then I always try to introduce an emphasis when I do that wasn't emphasized previous times. I've talked about it. That's a long way into the topic, so. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one too. You told us about it a minute ago. Good one. So here is the topic. I'm going to introduce a, a way of putting it: evangelical humanism. Okay. Mm. So, for those that kind of have had, have a longer walk with the you know evangelical Protestant Christianity, um, that term evangelical humanism may sound a bit troubling. <laughs> yeah. So there's a good way to talk about evangelical humanism, there's a bad way to talk about it, just yeah, to keep yeah. it sort of simple. Um, I think the good way is, is to talk about it in the way I think is, is a legitimate way of talking about those aspects of the gospel that pertain to our human nature, identity, and flourishing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so in that case it would be the emphasis would be on the evangelical determination of those aspects of our humanity so that would be evangelical humanism
0: the gospel brings to our humanity
1: something and so what this means is our this would be focusing on those aspects of our humanity and human life as creatures in the world but from a god-centered perspective from a perspective of the god of the gospel and so, how is a God-determined life, or let's put it this way, what does human nature, identity, and destiny look like when we have first considered in light of who God is as revealed in the gospel and in creation and what God's works and ways are? Right. That's a evangelical humanism. Right.
2: Yeah. right. It's worth noting that um, the term humanism was more or less by the evangelical world we've always identified it with what's been known as secular humanism, That's right. like the Humanist Manifesto and things like that, largely because they co-opted the term themselves. <laughs> but it's a much older term Great. and it does not, in its older usage, it carries absolutely no implication of some sort of secularist uh, outlook. So for example, mm. in you know, the, the word actually comes from the Italian word humanista, mm. uh, a humanist, we would we would mm-hmm. say, which mm-hmm. is In period in the in the Renaissance, that just simply meant someone who is was a scholar, a student of the humanities. That's (laughs) all it meant. That's all it (laughs) meant. But from there, it it begins to put to be used more in the sense of people who are looking at you know human nature, what it means to be human, what's necessary for human flourishing. All particularly that point, all of those kinds of things. And then once you start getting a, a sort of atheistic worldview in the 19th century, then the assumption is that in order for humanity to be truly liberated, you've got to get rid of God. You've yes. got to right. liberate them from religion. But that doesn't mean that throughout history. Yeah.
1: Right. That's ex- so. excellent uh, clarification there. And that's that's why I think we could use, in a very legitimate sense, the sense that t- another way of talking about the doctrine of humanity from a Christian perspective, as evangelical humanism, right? I mean, this could be a way of of discussing it. But like you said, um, we've talked in previous episodes what happens when the understanding of God starts to change in Western thought. um, And then the the impact in the way we thought about nature and humanity Mm -hmm. is that increasingly God became problematic and, um, for humanity. So, in other words, God needed to decrease in order for humanity to increase, or nature to increase. Right, There's right. a competition of wills going on, and um, and so, and what what ends up happening though is the. As as Glenn mentioned, um, the humanities or the humane started to take on a a very human centered, Mm -hmm. um, whether it was from nature or human nature, but not from a God centered perspective, but either a nature or human centered perspective. So it became maybe naturalized, maybe a way of putting it, or a naturalist um, interpretation. I mean, it it could be different ways, I guess, of, of, of stating that. But what happens is increasingly as the modern world starts to take shape, the enlightenment comes in and starts to consider things, putting God on the margins and then out of the picture and then everything starts to get its meaning within nature and within human nature is humanism takes on a whole different set of assumptions. So what right. it means to be a human Um, human nature, identity, and destiny starts to take on what Charles Taylor would call um, a picture that is completely within the this-worldly frame. Um, Immanuel Kant, uh, you know, he basically, let's take everything that used to be from heaven and put it smack dab into the earth. (laughs) And so everything becomes immanentized, as we tend to say in theology. Um, And uh, so, long story short, evangelical humanism, um, in our day and time would be actually flipping the original way I put it. Yeah. No longer is it a gospel God-determined sense of who human beings are as determined by the works and ways and purposes of God. It's the other way around. Yeah. The evangelical is now interpreted from a human-centered humanism. Right. So, so,
0: so, Ironically, yeah. we're talking about people in the church at the moment. Yes. You're referring to people not In the secular world, you're talking about people People who are in in the church church. who are almost sort of secularizing, sort of reversing things, bringing to the evangelical corpus kind of this godless understanding of the human.
2: That's right. Yeah. So it's the contrast between evangelical humanism and humanistic evangelical. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) It's where we put the the accent. That'd
1: be... I think that might be the title of the show. Maybe that's what we should call it. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I was thinking of a paper title with the thing, The, the Morass of Evangelical Humanism, but I think we, I could do it that yeah, way as yeah, well. Yeah, that's but good. but the, you know, the muddied waters now that when we think about the doctrine of humanity, what it, or, or maybe not even think about it is a good way of putting it. The way, as Glenn often talks about, the way in which our default mode enacts practices and interprets reality even as evangelical Christians owes much more I would argue to this kind of this worldly, we can use secular if we want, uh, humanism than it does to a evangelical defined and determined conception of human beings. There's a a publication that uh, is quite popular among younger
0: evangelicals called Relevant Uh. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I've written for it a couple of times, and after I did, I kind of felt like I needed to take a bath. (laughs) (laughs) You felt a little unholy? (laughs) Sorry if you're a fan of Relevant, but I'm not. (laughs) But, uh, essentially, what what Relevant... You know, the question that's being begged Mm -hmm. is that we allow the world to determine the agenda. We need to be relevant on the Mm -hmm. world's terms. We need to sort of conform ourselves To the uh, set of expectations, desires, agenda, whatever that is presented to us, when in fact uh, it's—I think what the world needs is someone to say to the world, "You have no clue what you need."
1: Yeah, (laughs) have no clue. Well, interesting. (laughs) Interesting, you put it that way. Um, There was an early debate in the, the what we call the modernist theologians between who were trying to rebel against modernism, even though they had not fully embraced. A, a classic evangelical theology that was between Paul Tillich, an existential theologian, yeah, yeah, I know and Karl Barth. Yeah, yeah. I, I studied under
0: Tillichians, so I know that whole. So you world. know it,
1: but now interestingly, Tillich—you couldn't just make him a, a strict liberal because he was someone. The existential element was trying. He was trying to find a correlation, mm-hmm. a correlation. So what we do is we have old Christian symbols, and they somehow have a, yeah, a reference beyond themselves. But we we always had the task of taking those symbols and, and answering the question that was relevant to the particular time period. Right. So it was his way of trying to take the, the, the modern age seriously mm-hmm. without jettisoning it, but then he was trying to take the, you know, the classic tradition seriously by saying that it had answers and resources that weren't available for today. So in a way, it would, be, it would almost be like saying we can draw off some ancient wisdom and reapply it to a new set of circumstances. If you want to make it simple, but Karl Barth's reaction to him is no. no well, no,
0: you no. know why I, why I always knew the, the <laughs> Tillicians were, were off. <laughs> yeah. I never liked any of those guys.
1: Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. That was all I needed. Don't <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like you yeah. <laughs> anyway, and they didn't like Bart, <laughs> and they didn't like me <laughs> and you. <laughs> But Bart's return was, no, wait a minute, you've got the whole thing wrong. Is they, 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 yeah. The current world doesn't even know the right questions to ask. That's
0: it, that's it.
1: And that, I think, that that prophetic voice, which Bart just simply took from the prophetic reform tradition, was was the, in the Augustinian tradition, is that uh, there's too much confidence in, in, in human nature that it thinks it has the right set of questions to ask or that can can push him up out of its... Yeah, think about it. You know, in order to have the right questions, you need to have some
0: measure of authority uh, when it comes to understanding a subject. Yeah. You know, w- you know, what is the basis of your authority for, you know, sort of knowing yourself? Maybe you know your, you know, your your fallen desires. Yeah. You know. Well, that's <laughs> where
2: we're going.
1: <laughs> I think that's where we're going.
2: Well, you know, in, an example of this is sort of what Christian Smith identified as the default religion of. Uh, 20 and 30-somethings now, mm-hmm. um, well, he had teenagers, now would be 20-somethings, it, it's, um, he called it moralistic therapeutic deism, yeah. right. which is based on the idea that God created everything, but he's not overly interested in what's going on here with a couple of exceptions. He doesn't really ask anything from you, doesn't expect anything from you. He wants you to be a nice person, but that's about it. And he's there. That's the, uh, the moralistic part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it. The therapeutic part of it is he's there if you need him to help you solve your problems. Right. But that's in case a of, in
0: case, in case of emergency, break glass yeah. theology,
2: right? Yeah. So so you it's moralistic. You should be a nice person. It's yeah. therapeutic. God's there to help you when you need it, but only then. Yeah. And it's deistic because he created it, but otherwise is uninvolved.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a warmer kind of deism, mm-hmm. I guess. And, and also, <laughs> and, 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 There's and, another title for the show, a warmer War deism. deism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: and, then, and then along with that, by the way, if you're nice, you go to heaven. Okay, you know, that's, the, that's the other part of it. Whatever that is. Um, but but you're nice to exam, dogs, yeah. but not
0: nice to Trump. But yet you can't be nice to Trump. Yep,
1: that's right. But, but,
2: but, but, but it's exactly what you're talking about in a humanistic evangelicalism. Yeah. In that, what is this? You know, I mean, this is what's in the churches too, in a lot of them. It is. It, it, it's it's fundamentally a human-centered way of looking at God that clothes itself in. Well, a variety of terminologies, it doesn't matter what your religious background is, but among others, it clothes itself in evangelical language Yeah, yeah. it sees itself as the gospel.
1: Yeah, and, and it's, it's you know, for those that have, you know, have at least had affinities to to other forms of the, you know, or more older forms of evangelicalism, where there was a real concern of the soul, which is another thing I want to get to today, is the, where yeah. did the soul go? But we'll get right, there. Right, um, is it What well, well, is, it is sort of, you know, I, I used to say, I think it was, was it Sartre or Camus? One of those was big on the concept of nausea. Was it Camus? I think, it a, I think it's Sartre. Okay, so, yeah. Sartre. I <laughs> well, they, they were all into that, the nausea. <laughs> you know, what brings out nausea for, for for me is going to a church and getting therapy. Right, right. And it's not to say that there isn't a, an element, because I don't want to erase, I want to talk about the holistic aspect. Of it. There is an element to which the gospel speaks to that dimension of us. Yeah. Sure. Sure, it's not sure. the soul or the predominant and and I think that's what I mean is is that you yeah it, you will see basically ha, you know this here is to basically not challenge you in any other ways but to make you the best person you're already self-actualizing to be mm-hmm. and so here's the way the gospel can basically um, help foster your humanistic flourishing right mm-hmm. that's that's kind of the thing and I want to get I want to get to how in the world did we get here, but I want to look at a couple of distinct ways in which the concept of humanity in the Western culture um, started to emphasize a few things that are definitely leading to things like this therapeutic emphasis in the churches, but also now this move toward the sort of social justice, mm-hmm. um, this this kind of way of reinterpreting the gospel either. For, for therapy or for, for um, sort of social liberation in ways that really either problematizes a classic understanding of the gospel or completely starts to to eclipse or erase it. Um, so I want to kind of get, how in the world do we get to the point? And so I'm going to actually give a little um, example that uh, Millard Erickson, I think he's well, I don't know what, I think Baptist background, but anyway he wrote a little book called Postmodernizing the Faith and he was kind of concerned of some of the shifts going on in theology and he wanted to kind of start addressing. that yeah, from him. the book cover it looks like a Baptist publication it does <laughs> I have a it does. little fun <laughs> it does. It definitely shame on Baker <laughs> um, but one of the things he does at the beginning he, he wants people to get an idea of kind of one of the shifts that have taken place in in Western society in particular and he wants to do this because this shift is also starting to take place in theology but it's also a way of basically pulling out the chief characteristics of the assumptions that we have of our own humanity as Westerners. Or it's sort of the default position a lot of us or most of us have, whether we like it or not. So he's talking about this little uh, test in in music that was given, it's a parable, music test. 1930, the, the way of presenting the test was define rhythm and it gave no alternative you know, they actually wanted a definition of what rhythm... it wasn't like multiple choice. That's right, not multiple choice. It was a short answer. Yeah, yeah. and just... In 1960, um, the movement of, um, the the definition of of rhythm actually still had a considerable objective definition, had content. The movement of music and time, including tempo and meter, is called blank. Of course, you put in the answer at this point, but at least there's a definition there. 1990 it's moved to multiple choice and but it is the movement still the definition the movement of music and time including tempo and meter is called what so the first is melody second harmony third rhythm fourth interval C would be the answer rhythm 2000 <clears throat> the movement of music and time commonly called rhythm oh wow makes you feel wow a I don't understand the question which, strangely, is probably what Which what is the correct the, answer. Uh, B, I think this is an unfair question. Oh, really? <laughs> wow, wow. C, I don't know what the word rhythm means. Or D, it doesn't matter how I feel as long as it's my own authentic feeling.
0: So now this is, he's having a little fun here, or is this a real
1: uh, thing? I think... I think this is a thought experiment of a okay. parable he came up with. But okay, I think so this, he's is, this wanting is this to is, give an example. It, it'd be
0: beautiful if he could. He he, could if we had footnote,
1: <laughs> footnote that. <then. laughs> um, but I think he captures yeah. um, this. Maybe right. it's you know. But um, it, it. Well, anyway, in in the if there is a correct answer now in right, 2000, right. it right. Um, it would have supposedly been D. It doesn't matter how I feel, as long as it you know is my own authentic feeling. Now right, I want right. to pick up on this my own authentic feeling right. because this is going to match something that uh, Charles Taylor talks about, the ethics of authenticity. Yeah, I got to uh, read that book. It's it's, it's a great sum because he, he did a lot of the legwork in the sources of the self yeah. and this is really taking from those sources how the conception of this modern self and postmodern self developed mm-hmm. and that's sort of his strength is kind of doing that. And yeah, he's yeah. He's, a, yeah, he's an historian of ideas. Yeah, and right. he and again, he's not a perfect interpreter, but a lot of times he hones in on I, I think a lot of the, the you know the, the best way of putting things or a good way of putting things mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. able to really he can encapsulate um, thought patterns that become predominant pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I'll get to some of that. But one of the interesting things that you have here is, is this, again, the question itself has changed, the answers changed. Now, this was marked a long time ago by C.S. Lewis and the Abolition of Man. Yeah, right. And he was already starting to pick up on this shift that had happened between objective beauty in the way we cultivate a proper emotive and dispositional response to it, to the way in which that organ was removed that cultivating organ so now we have is basically a head and the gut mm-hmm. and really just whatever the gut you know whatever we associate with our raw feeling starts to become the way in which we respond to whatever is is out there right. and it becomes the most significant aspect right.
0: you know i want to insert here something about abolition of man and lewis for a second i'm seeing him show up more and more and non Christian sources. Hmm. I think people are are looking for answers. So it's 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 intriguing because you know in his own time he called himself a dinosaur. Yeah. And then you know, during the days, you know, between say the sixties and the eighties everybody sort of like said, Yeah, he's good for people, you know, who are like died in the wool, <laughs> evangelical types and stuff like that. Yeah. But I think today that people are are are, are re, you know sort of re, re rediscovering him who aren't even in the church yeah, and uh... are finding some answers to some questions that they're asking
2: what lewis did better than anybody else was he could look at what was going on in his day and ask the question "What is the logical Implications of this, right. and then project into the future and talk about those very things happening. Because the fact of the matter is, any worldview that's in place long enough in a culture will lead to whatever its logical or frankly illogical implications would be. Right. Yeah, and, right, and he he was better than anybody else at seeing that.
0: Yeah, yeah, and he had a great way of putting it. Yes. Wherever sought. Yeah.
2: But anyway, sorry for that little. No, no,
0: I
1: think, yeah. I, think it's, he, he, I think he is uh, uh, and will continue to be a significant um, resource. And you know, maybe what Taylor calls retrieval and, and other theologians right. who have walked in the retrieval tradition mm-hmm. is um, what did it look like before we got. We, what, what did it look like before a lot of the things we still value and ideals we want to hold on to became distorted? Mm-hmm. And they grew out of uh, a fuller picture. And when we threw out some of the fuller picture, it started to distort those things we still value and want to value. But we realize how much we need that fuller picture because it really does depict reality in a fuller and better sense. And I think Lewis was, I think Tolkien and those guys preserved through the humanities what uh, theologians would, you know, maybe didn't didn't have the the, the set of tools to to address. That yeah, way, yeah. maybe they right. maybe it was even the academic form. That's a whole nother talk. Yeah, yeah, right. um, but anyway, that, so let, I'm going to do a few steps that Taylor makes. But one of the things he wants to talk about, he, he talks about sort of you know Alan Bo- Bloom's famous work, um, the closing of the the American mind. I think. I
0: think yeah, that's it. Yeah. Sure,
1: I've read it and um and one of the things he you know he wanted to talk about is uh you know bloom and some of these other figures recognizing similar to what lewis did this notion that you know if you go in any classroom today um, relativism is the default position right it's the given right. but he wanted to note that it's not because these students are very wise in in their studies of of knowledge and therefore the limits of knowledge this isn't the kind of relativism that's going on we're not talking about sophists here that's right it's it's it, for them it's a moral issue so relativism yeah. has been become a moral issue so to not affirm someone else's truth self conception self identification is a moral issue and so one of the things that Taylor wants to do is say that, well, maybe, maybe um, people like Bloom were a little too harsh because they send it, tended to see this as all bad. Mm. Um, and so what Taylor wants to do is he wants to say, well, maybe not all of it's bad. There may be, there may be a set of ideals that are worth saving, worth holding on to, but we need to retrieve the context that made sense of them. Mm-hmm. That's a whole nother show whether or not we want to go with Taylor on that. Uh, I disagree with some of that. I do agree with a little bit of that, that, that some of these things did grow out of the Christian tradition and they just became reinterpreted and then kind of reconfigured. I don't really know where I think about some of these though. But the first step was of course what led to this kind of making relativism, the acceptance of, of just about anything um, so predominant to where it is a moral disposition in the society. Um, so, in other words, what absolutized relativism? That's right. Right. And so, and, and then internalize it. Now, I know Wells, uh, David Wells, does a lot of work on the, you know, the sort of the forces of modernization, and we've covered those in certain shows, um, consumerism. Um, technology, um, the way in which industrial revolution reshifted things, globalization, refashioning things, those things are things that definitely are at play here. So I don't want to minimize that, but this is going to kind of look at what those forces have helped give rise to in terms of our self-conceptions. So one was autonomous individualism. This is first step. So how do we get to relativism as a moral value? Step one, autonomous individualism. And this is a quote from Charles Taylor. This is where in the West basically people have a right to choose for themselves their own pattern of life, to decide in conscience what convictions to to espouse, to determine the shape of their lives in a whole host of ways that their ancestors couldn't control and these rights are generally defended by our legal systems in principle people are no longer sacrificed to the demands of supposedly sacred orders and that's a to put
0: it is not a great way to put it <laughs> that, that's like uh, you know that's what we we would call uh, you know uh, begging the question you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is, and what you see here is, um, it, this is that part which David Wells often talks about in, in the, when he talks about the difference between modernization and modernity, for example, or secularization and, and secularity, is the forces um, that are going on on the outside are flattening the external. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're shifting the sacred order constantly to where nobody can hold on to anything. Mm-hmm. Um, And so your outside is shifting all the time. And then at the same time, you're having question marks come up of any kind of authority on the outside being able to claim it, since it is going through so many alterations. Right. And then you have what what, um, Wells will talk about is the internalization of that. Mm-hmm. And that's when he's saying that what we start to do, therefore, is place all that sacred order not on the outside that we can hold on to, but on the inside, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. our reason or in our experience. Um, and so that sacred, that, what, it, what becomes sacred becomes internalized. So the human subject in their inner life, whether it's their reason or their experience, that starts to become this new ground for determining right and wrong. Good or bad, identity, pattern of life, right. family life, all of these things. And that starts to become what is protected by the politics and the social order, is that which guarantees a person the space and the, the freedom to be able to actualize the whole of their life and meaning.
0: Okay, that reminds me of uh, Liquid Modernity by Zygmunt uh, Bauman, a uh. book uh, where he's taking this, uh, this Marxist sort of uh, trope or analysis that it, all things melt, you know, hmm. within kind of the modern capitalist hmm. scene. But uh, one of the problems that I've had with that over the years is, is that I don't really think that's the full story. That's I think right. that there's always somebody behind the curtain. You know, you think that all of the options are open when in fact you're in a maze that's been established by somebody else and the walls are in place. So it's like when your kid is small. Like (laughs) my, my, my kids are all grown now, but you know, you give them a choice, like eat your broccoli or stand in the corner. You know, you think you got a choice. Yeah. Really, uh, <laughs> the, there, there are other choices. Like one choice would be get up and run away.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> but it doesn't occur to the kid. Yeah, because right. what you've done is you defined that you know that yeah. you have a choice. So you yeah. have this illusion of autonomy.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: But that's the point. It's an illusion. Yeah, and I think many people in our society are yeah. deluded.
1: Yeah. And and I think even Wells will say that that's what, I think maybe that's the way he set it up that way. Now, I would challenge him a little bit on some of that, but I think one of the things he wanted to say is that the belief that we have autonomy, the belief that we have these choices or with this is really just us enacting those larger
2: forces. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, and I I take a step further that I used to say that, um, you know, freedom of thought means you're free to believe anything you want to except that you're right. <laughs> yeah, right. I like that's that. Right. You know because it it it's an enforced relativism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. so you know you may think you have autonomy mm-hmm. but your autonomy is circumscribed by the fact that you're not allowed to think that you have any kind of Anything you have hold of, anything that is absolutely true.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I, had a, I had a student come in today. <laughs> this, uh, I, I was talking about uh, Islam in history of Christianity, just defining it, what it is, those kinds of things. We'll move into the history next time. But he came in and he had a couple of questions about Islam, and you could tell he was dancing all around himself to try to sound non-judgmental. Mm. <laughs> You know, and he's, he, but, yeah. but he's, he's asking me questions that clearly, I think, showed that he didn't really agree with Islam, mm-hmm. but he was afraid to say it. Mm-hmm.
1: That's, mm-hmm. And that's
2: part of and, that. And this, despite the fact yeah. that I self-identified in class as a Christian, it's history of Christianity. I yeah. tell him I believe historical Christianity is objectively true. I do this. Yeah. And he was still afraid to say to me anything that suggested, yeah. anything that remotely resembled a critique yeah. of Islam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's how
1: powerful. Maybe that's what. Maybe that's to Well's point. That's how powerful that force is, and that moral has is cultivated in people that to critique is therefore somehow not to recognize. That's where we're going to go with this. And not to recognize is to oppress. Or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's again. You could be. It could be simple, more simple. That any absolute stand is automatically looked at moral with moral suspicion because it does kind of call into question the kind of rela- I mean, the, the kind of um, worldview that allows for any kind of, of belief, truth, claim, or anything else to be simply on the same plane. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. The irony of this is that we associate it with modernity, but this was essentially the outlook in the Roman Empire. Mm. Hmm. This is the outlook of empire. Augustine talks about it hmm. in The City of God. He says that In the city of man, earthly empires, among other things, tolerance is the greatest virtue because tolerance allows for for peace, which allows basically the power structures to stay in place without disturbance. Hmm. Um, He says, now, now Christians (coughs) want peace too, but for totally different reasons. But this idea of tolerance, allowing people to believe whatever they want to believe, that sort of thing, works for empire Yes. because it keeps the peace and therefore it keeps people from getting upset and rebelling or anything like that
0: but that gets to my point earlier about kind of the structures behind the facade exactly yeah you you think you're free when in fact everything is sort of laid out for you You, you've got choices but they're all pre-approved choices
1: And, and, and so, like you said, I, I think the society benefits and the politics benefit from that completely. I mean, that's one of the ways I think that it kind of, well, if you follow the, you know well, the, the history of the Enlightenment, it was trying to tame... Mm-hmm. Religious claim and to neutralize what could be be discussed and, and, and practiced publicly, so it wanted to push those those differences to the private, so that they to the personal and the experiential, so that they wouldn't be publicly challenging or binding and cause therefore disruption or questioning mm-hmm. of the nation state or its power. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, we've already discussed sort of the way in which the social order has was broken down and the way relativism comes in. But there are a couple other things that. Um, that uh, that Taylor wants to pick up and I think they're very valuable because they help us get back to that first kind of test that, that Erickson gave us. Um, but he calls this sort of the ethics of authenticity and I think a, a good way of putting it is kind of to enter back into my kind of my teenagers' world, and they're they're always hung up on saying I'm just being real. Yeah, right. Just right. being real. Right. And I'm always asking what what's <laughs> well, real. Okay. Define real. Well, right, the right. real is them being in touch with their authentic self. Right. So I'm good. I don't need anything more. Also, you turn I'll say me too. Do on one, one more. Same. Yeah. Already. You're good. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. right. So the. Um, so that, that's sort of what Taylor is after. How do we get to this place where my authentic self is the self, first and foremost, that I'm in touch with inside right, myself? Right. Um, um, well, Taylor traces kind of where this comes from. The source comes out of the 18th century, um, and it builds on these earlier forms of individualism that we were talking about this or, or maybe I put it a different way, autonomous individualism. Um, and he'll go basically Descartes and Locke, both with their emphasis on detached reason and then on a person's will prior to any social obligation help set the the grounds for that. Mm -hmm. Um, But he said it's really a child of the Romantic period. And his quote, human beings are um, endowed with an inward moral sense, an intuitive feeling for what is right and wrong, for what is good and bad. And so it started to have this voice within. So it's not an external order. Um, and the obligations, it's not a, 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 a you know, divine authority and the, the hierarchy structure to um, set the, the, that kind of um, that truth and goodness in, in a kind of form of life that is something we conform to on the outside, but it is completely starting to be dictated from within yeah, yeah, and we know we've talked about the way in which theology, with Schleiermacher, and the, and and then moves into evangelicalism, starts right, to to right. locate religious um, truth in this end.
0: Right. Yeah. One of the things that uh, you Thank know I you. run into all the time, you know, in, even in the world that we you know we participate in the church, sort, is uh, there is an evangelical version of this. Yes. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of the, what I call hippianity. <laughs> you know, it's just sort of like comes out of the 70s and 60s and stuff like that. And it's all about the authentic thing. And uh, the institution of the church mm-hmm. has to be justified to these people. Yep. And, and it never really ever is justified. That's you right. know, you you say the word institution, and immediately they're mentally shutting down.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. it automatically is is a, an external set of pressures that suffocate authenticity.
0: Right, and then the sacraments, of course, the sacraments are what I bring to them, not what they bring to me. Yeah, there's nothing in them. Yeah, it's all in me. Yeah, you know. And, and, and where this really gets absurd is where, when these people think that, you know, they can facilitate their relationship. You know, and this is another more, more sort of recent thing. You know, Christianity is not a religion. It's oh, a relationship. Yeah. I just want to gag every time I hear that. <laughs> That's right. But, but what, what's, you know, what, when you sort of just scratch the surface a little bit, you yeah. can bring to, the, bring to their attention the absurdity of this claim. How does this relationship work? Well, I've got me and my Bible. I said, so yeah. "Where does the Bible come from?" Yeah,
1: it's a form. It's an medium. But
0: you don't even go to the Good I actually had a person say <laughs> to me once, "From the store." <laughs> oh man! <laughs> think about that. I, I get my Bible from the store. There, well, where did the store get it? <laughs> from the printer. That's right. That's right. Or a publisher. That's yeah. right. There's there's no ability to sort of think about these sort of the means. Yeah how things get to me, and what that necessitates in terms of historic sort yeah. of Christianity and the fact that there were once monks who, by their tallow candles, were copying all this stuff out and losing their eyesight so that you could take them for granted
1: and that's one of the it's interesting because, yes, especially the, these modern forms, but there are kind of more radical forms of of, of Protestantism that I think when they made their appeal to scripture alone completely didn't capture what the original reformers were talking about. The original reformers, the very fact that you hold a canon of scripture is already an affirmation of the church and its continuity. It's Mm -hmm. saying we are in true continuity with the historic faith. That's
2: the difference. Well, and, and, you know, uh, Heiko Obermann did an essay on the idea of um, Sola Scriptura. Mm -hmm. And he traced it out. What he said, is that in the early church, everybody accepted the idea of Sola Scriptura until around Augustine and Basil the Great. Um, But Sola Scriptura does not mean what I think we could call Solo Scriptura. That's right. That is, it's not individual private interpretation. That's right. It is understanding scripture in light of what they called the Regula Fide, the rule of faith. Yeah. And with Augustine and Basil and others, suddenly tradition started becoming... of increasing significance, but it doesn't crystallize, really, as a separate and independent source of authority until much later, and arguably, really, most of that is in the wake of the Reformation, where Luther, the debate had been going on before Luther came along, and Luther comes in and he lands on the Sola Scriptura Interpreted according to the Regula fide that he lands in that camp hmm. now the problem is we 've forgotten all about the Regula fide yeah. the, you know we've forgotten all about that there is a rule of faith that it is anchored in church history that basically what that means is that if you interpret the scripture contrary to this, you're getting it wrong yes it's yeah. Yep. you know and it, it's things like the creeds and, and stuff like that gotcha. but in non-creedal churches and, and yeah. so on, you have nothing that you can appeal to as a rule of faith. So you're left with solo scriptura. It's yes. just me and my Bible. Yes. Yeah. Well, you can always appeal to sentiments, mm-hmm.
0: That's which right. is what gets well, us back to authenticity. There.
1: And, and I think pietism, for all of its, its lingering um, immersion in, in the... Um, in the sources and in the Bible and in a, you know, a more objective referent by putting so much emphasis on the, the feeling of conversion and the, and the kind of inner moral transformation oftentimes became the the way in which some of these figures like Schleiermacher and, and some of the different ones were able to reinterpret the faith in what like Brian Garish will, will argue um, is in in a certain continuity with the Reformation. I disagree with him. I think it's a fundamental break with its core care. But this is a way Brian Garish can be a Protestant liberal right. and think he is in continuity with Luther. Um, but I, I mean, it's you know that's its own show too. But I think what we're right. seeing is this this anthropology has been being cultivated a long time, or these anthropologies have been cultivated a long time, and so. The, the church who wants to hold to a fuller uh, biblical and, and uh, doctrinal vision has challenges that have been going on a long way. And actually you can see, I was just thinking when you were talking scriptures, the earlier debates, you would probably call it modern debates between the er- inerrancy of scripture in, in a lot of the denominations, was at a time when you were starting to maybe see this first stage where you had on the one hand someone trying to say that there is, a, there is an objective content there and that content is in continuity with this, this rule of faith in, in some mm-hmm. sense of the word versus the private mm-hmm. spiritual interpretation. Mm-hmm. And so you, you had already seen underneath that debate anthropological shifts, and well, theological shifts, but also different conceptions of what it means to be a human and a human in relation to God. So those going this direction um, would have been those emphasizing feeling over any external authority, even an authority of scripture. And so, so this, you know, basically the, the, the view of humanity that grows out of this is that we think of ourselves as being base, a, a being basically in terms of our inner depths, right. our feelings, our feelings uh-huh. of absolute dependence. I mean, that's how we can do it. Well, um, next step is Rousseau everyone loves Rousseau, right, except us. Uh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Right. But one of the things is that he, he, he kind of picked this uh, emphasis on the human subject as well. So morality is basically following a, the voice of nature within us. So our moral salvation comes from recovering an authentic contact with ourselves. Hmm. I think that right there is a very key picture yeah in in what starts to move towards a new definition of the gospel once that becomes internalized in a culture and a people yeah. uh, and we'll get there but just keep that in mind our moral salvation comes from recovering an authentic content with ourselves
0: Yeah. well it assumes a couple of things one yeah. that uh, that we're not fallen yep. which again is something rousseau was uh-huh. rejecting but uh, the other thing is that we're stable that there is a kind of stable place inside us that we can retreat to and say that's the solid
1: ground. That's that. That's the Garden of Eden within us. Right. right. In, a, in a strange way, he would see, for example, of course, he was in a different context, but he would see any church as basically that civilization force that moved us away from our our, mm-hmm. our, mm-hmm. our inner Garden of Eden. Yeah, if we
0: could he put was it sort right. of a
2: back to nature guy. Yeah.
0: Back to yeah. nature. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think I think that there. And this is where things get really kind of difficult to sort of uh authoritatively uh you know uh, analyze but at the same time the the resonances are just are so strong like in the garden <laughs> in the song in the garden mm-hmm. you know I come to the garden alone with the dew is still on the roses that's Rousseau's garden Yeah, yeah you know yeah uh, and i i've said this before mm-hmm. in different places and i wrote about it in a book but you know those uh you know Sort of camp meeting evangelicals, you know what I mean. Sort of mm-hmm. revivalist evangelicals. That song really was their faith. They re- it was really an inward mm-hmm. sort of uh, dynamic, and it was uh, gnostic. It had t- it was had a, it was tinctured with gnosticism, I think. And it was definitely yeah. what we're talking about here.
2: It's interesting. And, someday we should probably talk about the second great awakening.
0: Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. yeah.
2: But but yeah, and it's
1: I think what we see is the outflow of these kind of. Sentiments, thoughts, ideas—the way they kind of flooded—and and you do, especially Rousseau. It'd be great to do something on Rousseau, even a whole talk. But just because this so much damage, I think, has been introduced from. Uh, so we, should, we should, you know, what was that line from uh, <laughs> from uh,
0: the Pink Panther when you know you've got the inspectors in the uh, the Insanity Rousseau must die. <laughs> and Rousseau, we must, Rousseau must die. That should be maybe that's the name <laughs> of the. I mean,
1: we'll do the. Uh, will get the, See if we get the Pink Panther in the background. <laughs>
0: That's right. We got. That's right. We got. I don't know. Calvin in a straitjacket. Rousseau <laughs> <saw> must <my> die.
1: <laughs> that's going in directions we shouldn't go. But, uh,
0: so, so, but just keeping in mind here,
1: we've already moved to human autonomy, right? And uh, the move toward the, the,
2: the, this, you know, the, the human, the individual human center. Yeah. Just a, just a note to connect in with some other things. Mm-hmm. Once you move there, yep. You've done a couple of different things. One of them is you have eliminated any concept of virtue
0: Mm, because
2: if there is moral relativism if truth is entirely internal there is no moral truth there is no such thing as virtue that's right and if there's no virtue i should add there's no liberty we talked about this before and it's also the absolute destruction of pietas yeah piety yeah Right. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and
1: that, that stuff is, I think, you, you'll see in, in even the next couple of steps how important and significant that, that is. Um, so just keep it in mind our moral salvation for, so comes from recovering our authentic contact with ourselves. And I just want, real quick, before I move to the next step, is if you think about that just a little bit and you see that start to replace a, a historic gospel you can start to see the way in which anything that happens within the evangelical church, or any church for that matter, that places a question mark over the human being able to recover their authentic contact their authentic contact with themselves would be seen as oppressive and a denial of their ability to be authentic people, truly free selves, Truly human being in this in this picture, um, but before we go in in the next step, I want to say that he also redefines the the um, chief end of humanity. You know, we know is to know God, to to, to glorify enjoy, God, and, and enjoy, enjoy God, God forever, forever. The beatific vision. Well, here it's what is the chief end of religion um, or or moral in. You know, touching your moral self, (laughs) if you can put it that way. It's intimate contact with oneself is the source of all joy and contentment. Yeah. So to to deny anyone to be and express their authentic self is basically to deny them the right to pursue happiness Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, on their own terms. And so rousseau couples this with self-determining freedom i'm free when i decide for myself what concerns me rather than by any external influences so this is not he would be wouldn't like anything to do with negative liberty um, basically his challenge is i break the hold of all such external impositions and decide for myself alone so it's a very radical vision yeah. marry this to the next person uh, Herder. Uh, I don't know if a lot of people know that uh, Herder was really big in... Uh, I, I, fill me in a little bit. Well, Herder uh, really brought, prior to Dilfey, the whole notion of hermeneutics back into the picture, and another thing that Herder did um, was brought people, uh, I think in a good way, back to their own original languages, original cultures, and original sources. Um, actually, he was one of the motivating factors before the, Fini- you know, for the Finnish people to return to the Calavela which was their uh, historic epic and their original language. So that, you know there are some benefits that came out of Herder, but um, one of the, I guess, downsides, oh, anyway, interestingly, Herder um, would have been at Dilthi and Schleiermacher. It would have been, there would have been a connection there. Um, um, he, he was sort of, he was big um, also around, I think, the time of Lessing, I could be wrong, yeah, okay. in the ugly ditch. So, and and uh, Herder is the one in hermeneutics who brought empathy back into the picture. So the whole concept of empathy came a lot out of uh, his work. So in order to read a historic work, we least need to have some kind of analogy, and we do that through empathy. So that would be out of date now. But one of the things, I think the negative things of what he brought in is that he coupled with Rousseau is this notion that each of us has an original way of being human, which I guess is obvious. But he turned this into a moral position. Hmm. It would have simply been, you know, just a fact at one time. Um, So each person has his or her own measure. And then the difference between human beings, this comes from Taylor's, their unique aspects um, are now of moral significance. So there's a certain way of being human that is my way. Yeah. I am, this is, I, I, I put it this way, it's a calling now. Right. So to be the true you, to be the authentic you, if you're going to be the real human you're called to be, is to live life your own way, not as an imitation of anyone else. Now we know the irony there. All the young right. people who say I'm original right, are basically right. copying the other people who say right. they're original.
2: Well and then, um, Oh, i blanking out on his name, head of the Acton Institute a few years back uh, said, you know, the, the, the problem with, with being true to yourself and being authentic is, what if you're a jerk? <laughs> That's right. That's
0: right. I have to I'm recognize. authentically a jerk.
2: <laughs> you know, if, Who are if, you to condemn? If your authentic self is, is to be a jerk, you know, then... Yeah, I've come
0: you know. across those people. Yeah. I'm just saying it
1: like it is, baby. Most of those people that are so-called true to themselves are jerks. So. <laughs> Just get that out there. <laughs> and when I'm being right. true to my fallen self, I'm a well, jerk. Right, so. that,
0: that, but that's it. <laughs> this is where the fallen self yeah. comes into the picture, where we, we're, you know, we uh, who are truth, truth tellers need to confront people and say, you know what? This self that you're trying to get in touch with is really ugly right.
1: and desperately wicked. Yeah. Who who, who can know it?
0: <laughs> right. There you go. That's yeah. right. You know. You know, when, and I, sometimes I, this comes up, you know, in, uh, you know when, in my discussions with people about things like assurance and so forth. And Now, I understand that we, we long for some peace with regard to our eternal destiny and so forth. That's yeah. great. But do you really know yourself as well as you think you do? Peter thought he knew himself. That's right. He said, I will go with you to the end. I will die
1: with you. Okay. Interesting. Let's see yeah. how it works out. Very interesting. You know, it, this is you know maybe this is an unwarranted associative leap. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but these things come up with my, my kind of mind. But That's the entire
2: podcast. That's the unwarranted
1: associative leaps. if we them. shut that I down, love. we're done. <laughs> They're done. Well, anyway, here's an odd one. Okay, Dietrich Bonhoeffer okay. in prison writes a series of poetry, and one of his poems is "Who Am I." Oh. And he's, he realizes he's not going to be delivered from prison. He's going to be put to death now. Yeah. And his interactions are only with guards and prison mates. Huh. And so notice what he's not asking. He's not saying what the psalmist said. You know, what is man that you're mindful of him or who? You know,
0: yeah.
1: um, he's asking, "Who am I?" This is an identity question. He goes, "Am I this person? Am I that? Am I the one who's happy in the morning but depressed at night?" You know, this, is all this back and forth. He says it much more elegantly. But at the end of it, he's like, you know, in a way, I'm about to give myself up because I thought I was being faithful to Christ, to to put a spoke on the wheel of Nazism. I went against all of my pacifist ethics to do it. Um, All this stuff he's going through in his head. The last thing he says, who am I? Um, I have no clue, basically, but I'm yours. There you go. And yeah, you gotta go outside yourself. You have to, and this is this is where we're gonna go, this ex, extrinsic anthropology or view of humanity that the gospel calls us to. And I, I think that that uh that's gonna sum up the direction. So, anyway, last thing with Herder is that you miss your calling in life if you know, and your whole point, if if you are not self-defining, self-determining, self-interpreting, and insisting on you being who you originally make yourself to be. I remember my teen one day, he was younger, and he came in and said, uh, I just want to be a walking piece of art. I mean, this is this kind of originality yeah, and right, uniqueness. Right. Um, but anyway, this requires, of course, as Taylor puts it, a kind of contact with ourselves and our own inner nature. And so what ends up happening is, there in the West, there's a, there becomes this tension. Any external pressure that gets in the way of any in the internal Mm-hmm. ability to be in contact with oneself is basically oppressive and, and it's denying someone not only their humanity and existence but salvation now is seen as getting right. rid of anything external right um, in a way and even this comes down to social definition for example, the old way of society society had terms and orders and and expectations we conformed to so our identities conformed to them and we worked with them and we had a shared sense of meaning well this world meaning is internally and of course Wittgenstein of course he wrestled with this remember he said there is no kind of internal private language you at least need a social language to be able to do anything so he developed that whole kind of thing that theology ran with oh wait a minute we can have objectivity without having objectivity you know we can have (laughs) social objectivity right (laughs) Right. but but we start to see now is this similar thing I mean we've, we've seen it a lot of course we mentioned the transgender thing where my um, we start to start developing new pronouns and everything to 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 for inner self definition right. but we need society now to start using this language because this is the third step that uh... taylor talks about because we need recognition
0: Yeah, right, right.
1: so it's not just i define myself but in order to actually be this authentic self i also need it to be recognized in the in the in the external right. so now we have to start Re-engineering society to be affirmative of whatever it is I define myself to be—define as good as bad, as good as bad, or anything else—and the only thing that needs to be left out of this picture is any oppressive presence that would place limits on anyone doing those things.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep, that, that, that's what people mean when they, they use the the expletive Nazi. Yes, that's, that's what they're really yeah. saying: yeah. is that you're a person who. Uh, even though that's not what historical Nazism was about, Yet. but that's what they they say. We need to start wrapping up a bit. Yeah. Um, this has been r- really great stuff. I do want to finish with a little uh, commercial at the end, but um, Maybe maybe we could just wrap up. You, you want to wrap up anything
1: here, Tom? Yeah, I, I think wh- where this goes is, especially in the churches, to start to confront issues. I think of social justice, but also in therapeutic interpretations of the faith. I think what we need to start being on guard about, or at least starting to be vigilant and watchful, are the ways in which these definitions of humanity are starting to drive oh, yeah. the theological and uh, ministerial agenda.
0: It's happening, I know, in my denomination and in my presbytery. Yeah. And But the fact of the matter is, is the guys who think that they're sharp
1: yeah.
0: actually are completely blind to how much they've been shaped and molded
2: by these by forces. These right? forces
1: yeah.
0: Anything
2: uh, you want to say? Glenn? Yeah, I a quote from Dorothy Sayers that actually goes back to mm. earlier on. Uh, when we were talking about moral relativism and its connection to tolerance. Hmm. This is what Dorothy Sayers had to say about tolerance. In the world, it is called tolerance, but in hell, it is called despair. (laughs) The sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for it. For which it will die. <laughs> mm. Well, there you go. You're completely within yourself. There's mm-hmm.
0: nothing outside you to give you any sense of self mm-hmm. or meaning or anything.
1: Yeah, I, I thought that was brilliant. Technology. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Well, if you don't recognize I have three heads, I can't <laughs> associate. <laughs> <Gotcha. That's laughs> yeah. That, I mean, what a way to sum it up. I think right. that hits it. That, hit, that hits the end of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I what
0: came to my mind as we were, you know, sort of wrapping things up was. Uh, that song that Johnny Cash did a cover for, Hurt. Oh, yeah. What have I become? Hmm. And hmm. Uh, he's at the end of his life, he's asking the question, you know, hmm. he's he's raising, the, you hmm. know, he's asking about whether or not he's accomplished anything in life that was worth while, you know, empire of dirt is the term he uses. <laughs> you could take my empire of dirt. and then And then at the very end, though, there's this recapitulation where he says, if I could have kept myself, I would have, you know there's a there's some lines there at the mm. very end so I'm not really sure how to interpret that song in light of what we've said maybe and it's... I think
1: someone I think I could be wrong but it was, Another rock star who wrote that song. Well, it's nine-inch nails. nine-inch nails. And did he
2: end up committing suicide? I could be I don't wrong. I don't, I'm Kurt not Cobain up on my. I think you're thinking of Kurt Cobain in, of Nirvana. Well, it was him well, too. That. But there's. I thought the singer. I thought
1: the singer also for that did. But I could be wrong. But there anyway are a lot of
2: there are a lot
0: of rock stars who that killed <laughs> yeah, That's myself.
1: right. I wouldn't be <laughs> off by saying <laughs> about that. Yeah I, yeah, I can't say
0: one way or the other. Yeah. But anyway, we need to ramp up. But before <laughs> we do, I want to uh, just say uh, that uh, we've got a big event coming up. And it's going to be uh, the uh, 19th of October. We're going to have Ben Merkel with us. Mm-hmm. We're going to do a live podcast. And if you're in the Connecticut area, you can be part of it. We are going to be at uh, uh, Willimantic Brewing Company, Willibrew, in Willimantic, Connecticut. In my opinion, the uh, the, the most underappreciated town in Connecticut. It's mm-hmm. It's got a lot of character, a lot to say for it. Uh, I know there will be people who live in Connecticut who will raise an eyebrow at that, but uh, <laughs> come on down to Willow Brew and and uh, check out the uh, great brew, brew pub they have there. It's it's ranked as per, perhaps the best brew pub in Connecticut, but we're going to be there with Ben, and uh, we have 25 seats available, and and they're filling up. So if you want to be a part of this event and you're in the Connecticut area, it's free admission. We do encourage you to... To, to to buy things, you know, to get a get eat, to eat. drink, and eat. be happy. Yeah, that's right.
1: But not in the Epicurean sense.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, obviously our host, uh, Will Manick Brewing Company, is not in this just to have a place for podcasts to meet. Uh, they'd like to sell some uh, of their wares, their goods. But it's going to be a great time. And the theme is uh, classical Christian education. That's what we're going to be talking about and Ben is an authority. He is the president of uh, New St. Andrews College in Moscow, Idaho. So I've met Ben, but the other guys haven't, and we're looking forward to having us all together with Ben there. Ben is going to be preaching at my church, Presbyterian Church of Manchester, on the 20th, and uh, so we're looking forward to having him there for that. But anyway, uh, if you'd like to know more about that, just go to our Facebook page. On our Facebook page, there's there's a link. Uh, the Theology Podcast Facebook page. I doubt if there's another page on Facebook named The Theology Podcast. I really <laughs> doubt it. So if you search for that, you'll find it, and you'll find uh, a, uh, a link, and there you can go to our Eventbrite page and get your tickets because, again, there's only 25 spots, so you got to have your tickets even though they're free. <laughs> anyway, that's it for today. Thanks for listening to The Theology Podcast. Bye-bye.
1: Bye now.